Amen. Thank you so much. And please do keep your Bibles open back there at Mark chapter 14, where we'll be spending our time today. This remarkable story. Now, where are some young people around? I can see a few of them over there. Don't wave. I know you're too cool for that. Have you ever read a biography? You know, a biography is an account of someone's life written by someone else, whereas an autobiography is one you write about yourself. Here is an example. Charles Dickens. I brought this one because it's so big, the people at the back can see it. Look at the size of that. I haven't read it, but it's very useful as a doorstop or to help your grandma get on, reach a higher cupboard in the kitchen or to stop a burglar. Charles Dickens' biography, and you can guess the sort of things it covers. Parents and family, birth, childhood, early life, education, formative influences, development of life's work, marriage, children. I think Dickens had 10 children, so there's probably a few chapters on them. Friendships, beliefs, opinions, great events, and of course, plenty of books that Dickens wrote. And then right at the end, just a little bit, is his death. Because in the end, we all die. Now, that's what you expect from a biography, isn't it? That kind of narrative. And with that in mind, the official biographies of Jesus Christ are really strange. For a start, they are much shorter. Mark is what? I don't know, 10, 20 pages? Whole life is in there. But that's what we'd expect in the ancient world. Books were generally shorter. And with Jesus, these biographies are very little about his early childhood and his early life. They really begin at the age of 30. But the strangest thing about these biographies is the percentage of material spent on his death. The death of Jesus occupies so much real estate in the, the Gospels. Take Mark, for example, which we've been working through. Most scholars think this was the first one written down, written down within living memory of many of those who saw the events. It begins when Jesus is about 30 years old. There's almost nothing about his parents, family, birth, childhood, early life. It jumps straight into his career as an itinerant preacher and miracle worker. It gives a lot of coverage to time spent with a small handful of followers called the disciples. And a lot of the content is his teaching, which would be typical of the biography of an ancient philosopher or teacher. But the death is the strange part. The death of Jesus is clearly the focus, the climax. The last quarter of the book slows right down and focuses on some tiny details surrounding Jesus' betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and then his resurrection. And long before then, even as early as chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is already hinting about his death. In chapter 2, 20, he says, The time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. He's referring to himself. He's going to be taken away from them. And then there was a hinge point in the middle of the book. You, most of you will remember that. We moved from asking, who is Jesus, to what has he come to do? And at the very point where Peter got the right answer, you're the king, the, the special one, the Messiah. Brilliant, what does Jesus say? He began to teach that he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days rise again. And he says he spoke plainly about it. He really did. 
Not only there, but in chapter 9, verse 30, in chapter 10, verse 32. And each time, these close disciples reveal their stunning ignorance. They haven't grasped it, but Jesus keeps pressing the point. I've come to die. In chapter 12, he went public with a dramatic story about some tenants looking after a vineyard, but they treat the the servants of the, the landowner cruelly, and eventually he sends his only son, and the son is killed, and the body thrown out of the vineyard, and everybody knows that Jesus has spoken this parable against the leadership of Israel. So who's the only son? There's only one candidate. It's Jesus. He will be killed by the tenants. And so now, verse chapter 14, you read it if you look at your Bible there. Uh, The chief priests and the teachers of the law, verse 1, were scheming to arrest him secretly and kill him. This is a very cunning plot. Verse 2, not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now, at the very moment where his death draws very near, Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach his disciples. He wants to prepare them for what's coming, for the trauma. And in our passage today, we are brought into a very special moment. Because for the first time in Mark, Jesus explicitly draws the connection between what he's come to do and the story of God's salvation. He doesn't just give them a lesson, he gives them a meal. A meal. And this meal is so very important because in its very essence it teaches us what Jesus' death is all about. The meal reminds us of his death vividly. And that meal is formative for every Christian man and woman in this church. For over 20 centuries, or nearly 20 centuries, it's been practiced countless millions of times in churches all around the world, and it will continue until he returns. We call it the Lord's Supper, or communion. We're celebrating it tonight at our evening service, if he doesn't return first. Now what Mark gives us today is a front row seat at the first ever communion service, administered by the Lord himself. It will explain what he's come to do. And right before this meal, two people respond to Jesus in very different ways, polar opposites. One of them does the most beautiful thing, the other betrays him. So we're going to look at this passage, actually back to front. I want to look at the second half first, and then go back to those two people. So I've got two headings. Firstly, a meal full of meaning. A meal full of meaning. And secondly, responses that are revealing. A meal full of meaning, responses that are revealing. Firstly, a meal full of meaning. Let's take up the story in verse 12. You see in your Bible, it probably has a heading like the Last Supper. And notice the timing. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, that phrase, it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, is is a key to this whole story. So hang on to that one. There were several great festivals in the Jewish calendar, uh, but the greatest of them all was the Passover. 
It was a way of remembering the founding moment in the nation's history when they were rescued from slavery. Actually, they'd been uh, the subject of ethnic genocide in Egypt. They were enslaved in the most brutal way. And they'd been brought out from that slavery by God himself through a series of powerful works. The Ten Signs. And God brought them out and rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he brought them through the Red Sea. The waters parted. They came through on dry land. It's a new creation. God's people coming through like a second Adam. And they come through and they go to Mount Sinai and they're given the law, the teaching, the wisdom, the guidance of God himself. And they're given a promised land to go and live in. And so the only way, here's the key to that Passover, escape from Egypt. The only way to escape the tenth plague which was the, most, the darkest and most devastating plague, the plague on the firstborn, was if you had blood on your doorposts. Because God said that on one night, this dark night, the angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn in every family. And the reason why the firstborn is so significant is the firstborn is the family's future in the ancient world. The firstborn is the one that carries on the name. The firstborn gets a greater inheritance. And so for the firstborn to be killed is to end the future for Egypt. But it would be every household, by the way, unless they were sheltered under the blood of the lamb. And this lamb had to be killed in a special way, and the, the Israelites were told very, very clearly, paint the blood on the top and on the sides, on the lintel and the doorposts, or the firstborn of the Israelites would die too. The Israelites don't get a free pass just because they're Israelites. They have to only can escape because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, in verses 13 to 16, clearly this meal, remembering all that, is very important to Jesus. Look at the, the um, instructions he gives. You know, he sends the disciples ahead, go into the city. There's a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. And he's got this uh, message worked out to the owner of the house. Where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room and it's all ready. Now, he knows the end is drawing near. And we might think, what's so important about this meal that, you know, he's about to die? And he knows it. Why does he still want to have this, this meal now? And it's because this meal is full of meaning about himself which he will give them as the key to understand his death. But before Jesus will do that, he sounds an awful note of betrayal in verses 17 to 20. They arrive and they're reclining at the table and he says these heartbreaking words, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. He actually tells them four times that one of them will betray him. Four times he's trying to show them, to humble them, to say, look, you haven't got it all figured out yet. You are weak and sinful. You still need my grace. But they can't imagine that they would do such a thing. And they say, no, surely you don't mean me. And everybody says it. They still are overestimating themselves, as they have done all along. They all deny it, verse 19. But you see, when Jesus loves someone, he keeps coming after them. And in his kindness, he will show you your capacity for sin. And that is a kind thing for you. 
Because Jesus loves you, he's going to keep coming after you in your life, and he will show you your capacity for sin. And so you may have been a Christian for a while, and you find yourself thinking sometimes, my goodness me, I think I'm worse than ever. That's because he's, he's showing you and revealing your sin and then renewing you. Because until we see how spiritually unable we are, how hopeless, how wretched and in need, absolute need for mercy, we won't be able to receive God's grace because we will think that we can manage okay ourselves. As long as you think you're worthy, you will not be able to receive the grace of God, my friend. So where are you today? Do you really think that you're, you're almost good enough for God? You're really quite worthy. You just need to try a little bit harder, try your best. And friend, you are unable to receive God's grace and forgiveness. And Christians, we do this too. Start to think that it was just down to us and get very defensive when anyone points out something about us. God help us. Now in verses 22 to 25, Jesus does something really staggering and shocking. He takes the Passover meal, which everybody knows, and they did it every year, and it's, it's a formula, you know, they, they know how it works. He takes that meal and he makes it about himself. <laughs> no one would do this. He takes the meal and he makes it all about himself. So when Jewish households celebrated the Passover, the head of the household would guide the meal and explain each element. And I have a vivid memory many years ago of being in this very room and a Jewish Christian, a Messianic Christian called David Moss, led us through a traditional Passover with all the elements. And it was an extraordinary experience being guided through it. And each time the elements are taken, they're explained. It's a teaching meal. It had been instituted in Exodus chapter 12 and celebrated for hundreds of years. And Jews still do it today. Somebody gave me a, a, a pudding recently. A kind friend at this church gave us a pudding that was a kosher pudding for Passover. So you can buy these things even in the local supermarket. But Jesus does something that no one else would dare to do. When he takes the bread and he breaks it and gives it to them, he makes it about himself. He says, take and eat. This is my body. You see what he's doing? And when he takes a cup of wine and blesses it, and gives it to them, he makes it about himself. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see what he's doing? On the eve of his betrayal, as he looks ahead to the most excruciating, terrifying, shattering ordeal, he takes the time to, give, to sit with the disciples and give them a meal full of meaning. And the meaning is this. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Amen? Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the one who will be sacrificed. His life will be poured out for many. And through his death, many will be delivered from death and rescued and brought into the promised land. The first Passover meal was instituted by a great deliverer, Moses, who led the people out of slavery. But the Lord's Supper was instituted by a greater deliverer, Jesus Christ. He is creating a greater universal people of God which none of us could number and leading them out of slavery to sin and death and Satan. The first Passover lamb centered on a 
the, sorry, the first Passover meal centered on a lamb that was slain as a substitute. It died in the place of the firstborn. But Jesus doesn't pass around any meat at this meal. Why? Because he himself is the lamb. John the Baptist, in another place, when he saw Jesus, cried out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover story taught us that divine justice will fall on everyone. There's no free pass for the Israelites. In every home there would be a dead firstborn, no matter who you were. The only way to escape was to put your faith in something that looked quite strange and weak. Some blood on some doorposts. God's provision of a sacrifice, somehow it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. And I guess the Israelites were quite scared. Really? You had to slay this lamb, though, and put the blood on the doors as a sign of your faith in God's mercy. I'm trusting this is going to work. I don't know how. And any Israelite family who failed to do that would weep bitterly. Many years after the Exodus, the prophet Isaiah wrote a strange and very beautiful prediction. He spoke of a suffering servant who will come and rescue God's people from oppression once again. He says... The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who was this suffering servant, this lamb? Now we know. It was Jesus. And at this meal full of meaning, he gives us a way of remembering and enacting what he did at the cross. What does he show us? Three wonderful things. Sacrifice, substitution, and sufficient. Sacrifice, substitution, and sufficient. Jesus' death is a sacrifice. It's not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's not even a moral example primarily, although there are elements of that. The main thing is that Jesus' death is a sacrifice that takes away punishment. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. It's a sacrifice of a substitute. Now, the lambs of Old Testament times, I guess, always had an element of mystery. How can a young animal take away the sin of a human being, a moral agent made in God's image who has rebelled against his or her creator. How could a young lamb do that for me? It, it was something about it that never really made sense because the lamb was just a picture of the one who would really do it for every person who believed in God. They were just pictures of the true lamb of God, the only one who lived a perfect life and gave his life for you and me. It was the sacrifice of a substitute, and it is sufficient. Jesus died once for all. Because he was perfect, his death is of infinite value. It covers the sins of billions of people. We add nothing to it except our sin. We can't add, we don't need to add anything of our own efforts to Jesus' death. It is absolutely sufficient there is now no condemnation, says Paul, for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
a sacrifice of a substitute that's absolutely sufficient. So, what do you need to do to receive this mercy and escape death and judgment? What do you need to do? Shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Take shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. It's very simple. What does that mean? Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting your own goodness, your own efforts, your own morality, your own religion. Throw it away. You can't save yourself. But put your trust in Christ alone, rest on him, rely on his grace, and you receive mercy. It's the great glad tidings, the gospel. Shelter under the blood of Jesus. So there's the meal full of meaning. And if you want to come back tonight, we will share that meal together. And secondly, there are responses that are revealing. We turn back now to the first 11 verses of the chapter with a new perspective, I think, because here we see two people with very, very different responses to Jesus, two people who know him very well, close friends, we might say. Both of them look like followers. But at the crunch time, one of them does something incredibly beautiful and the other does something unspeakably awful. Their names are Mary and Judas. Now, it's really intriguing, I think, given the weighty nature of what's going on about Jesus' death and the scheming and the cross is coming. It's really interesting, isn't it, that given that, all of that context, Mark gives this long account of a bottle of perfume. <laughs> I mean, look at what he does. It's quite an interruption. Uh, chapter 14, you know, begins about the, the teachers, they're scheming, scheming to address him. And then verse 3 He's in Bethany, and we get all this story about the perfume and how much the perfume's worth and what the people think when she breaks the bottle and puts the perfume in. Jesus is talking about the perfume. And, what? and then, then it comes back to the main story, which is about being betrayed. Now, you will remember, if you've been around um, Kings for the last few months, that Mark loves what? Sandwiches! If you're new here today, you think we're all crazy. I'll tell you what the sandwich is, not the kind of sandwich you had at lunch. A sandwich in Mark is where Mark starts the story, then he interrupts himself with another story, and then he comes back to the first one. So it's like the bread, the filling, and then the bread. And so you have this story A, interrupted B, come back to A. And the two parts of the story help to interpret each other. And this, he's got about nine of these sandwiches in the book. It's really interesting. And this one is a sandwich because we have the... The, the main story was about the betrayal of Jesus, and then in the middle, the story about the perfume, and then we come back to the betrayal of Jesus. So why has he done this? Hmm. Interesting. Mark isn't stupid. It's a literary device. Let's think about the betrayal and see how the perfume provides the key. Judas. Judas, what a tragic figure. Look at verse 10. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Here is the weak link who provides the way in. He goes out at night. Judas is one of the twelve. 
He's one of the hand-picked team. He's been there for the whole journey. He sat on the hillside and where Jesus taught the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He was there handing out the few loaves and fish and seeing 5,000 men fed in the wilderness. He was there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when the furious storm went up and he saw Jesus calm it with a word. He was there at countless healings and exorcisms. He went out on mission with the others and saw Jesus' name do mighty things. He saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Judas saw it all. And more of that, he was an intimate. Judas lived with Jesus for three years on the road. Can you imagine that? That must give her a friendship and intimacy that nothing else can. Jesus had poured his life into this man. Judas had seen Jesus exhausted and worn out, but still giving his care and attention to the crowds. He'd, he'd looked Jesus in the eye, and he'd seen eyes of love looking back. You know what? Judas had a job in the group of disciples. You know what his job was? He was the treasurer. He was the one responsible for the money. Now, you, you, you don't ask someone to be the church treasurer if you think they're a bit shady. Our church treasurers are people of the utmost integrity. Thank you. Is that the wife of a treasurer? Anyway, let's carry on. You don't ask it, medieval paintings of Jesus. So you know... Um, the, the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci, you've got them all sitting on a long table, totally inaccurate, all sitting looking for the camera. And, and there's one that looks really shady. It's kind of a bit, looks a bit dodgy, always a bit dark, because a lot of these painters are racist. That's Judas, and everybody knows, oh, yeah. No, you wouldn't have looked at him and thought, he's the dodgy one. He's, he's the trusted one, he's the treasurer. But this is the guy who betrays Jesus to death, and we learn elsewhere that he went out into the night and struck a deal to sell Jesus out. How much for? 30 pieces of silver, which I believe is the cost of a slave. Verse 11 says this, they were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money. That's what he really loved. We've all heard of Judas before, I guess. If you call someone a Judas, it's not a compliment. The natural question is, how on earth could it happen? One of these guys, they must have, he must have known that it would lead Jesus to a violent death. For 30 pieces of silver, how could he do it? Mark doesn't really answer our question explicitly, but remember the sandwich. He puts the story of a woman in there. And this filling will draw the sharpest contrast between true and false devotion. True love for Jesus and false love. Now look at, with me at verse 3. He goes to Bethany, a village a few miles from Jerusalem. Jesus used it as a base of operations during this trip. And he's reclining at table and they would lie on their side, quite close to each other. And it's dinner time, and he's in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Now, that's an unfortunate nickname, isn't it? <laughs> hey, do you want to come out with Simon the leper? Nah, I'm all right, thanks. I've got to take some library books back. Now, we can only presume he was a former leper, but unfortunately for him, the name had stuck. 
And <laughs> here are the guys lounging around, eating and talking, and something extraordinary happens. A woman comes in <coughs> with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she breaks it. And she pours the perfume on his head. Now, I just want you to use your imagination for a moment. Oh, sorry. Use your imagination for a moment. Maybe close your eyes if, if you want to. The smell of that perfume, the aroma, would have filled the place. And there is Jesus in the middle of the room, and this woman is there in absolute adoration, and he's being treated like royalty. This is kingly. She's treating him like a VIP, and she's also breaking all the rules. Because in polite Jewish society, a woman would not come into the fellowship of a group of men unless serving food. It's like that with conservative Muslims around the world. And second, she has just done something that most of the people in the room think is a scandal. She's just blown over 30,000 pounds anointing Jesus. 30,000 pounds. Oscar Wilde wrote that the cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Other people in the room are looking on, horrified, and doing the sums. Verse 4, some of them are saying indignantly to one another, why this waste? Perfume. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. The original language says, it's in there in the footnote, more than 300 denarii, and a denarius was a day's wage, for an average worker, so it's day rate. You could, if you work 300 days a year, you've got 300 denarii. It would take maybe more than a year to buy one jar of perfume like this. Let's say over 30,000 pounds. Maybe because we're in London, we should add London waiting. <laughs> what do you think of that? Honestly, do you think it was a bit of a waste? Think what could have been done with 30,000 pounds for children in need all around the world. Think what you could do with 30,000 pounds for a, a missionary or somebody, a ministry, a worker. Just think of what you could do for the poor. You know how people always wheel out the poor when they see something being wasted? Finish your Brussels sprouts because the children in Africa don't have them. Well, why don't you send them to the children in Africa then? Was it a waste? Not according to Jesus. Verse 7. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. In Jesus' mind, this is an exceptional gesture, but the circumstances call for it. He knows he's about to be betrayed and killed. He will be executed in the most violent way, he will be spat upon, beaten, and, and beaten so badly that parts of his beard will be ripped out of his face. He will be flogged, dragged through the streets, and so weakened by the ordeal that he won't be able to carry his own wooden crossbeam. And that's just the start of it. Then he will be stripped naked, nailed to a wooden cross, and that will be dropped into a deep hole in the ground. And the shock of that alone could dislocate bones. And there he will hang naked until dead the most excruciating, shameful way and cheapest, 
that the Romans could come up with. But there's more. Jesus will be abandoned by all his friends. Judas is just the start. There will be a total defection. Peter, the right-hand man, will swear blind and swear, I never knew him. In his hour of need, they will all desert him. But there's more. There's another level we can barely comprehend. Our God is a trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, a tri-unity. And through all eternity, they've been united in a communion of love, supremely happy. And at the cross, it is the will of the Father to crush him. One of the popular songs we sing says, the Father turned his face away. It's not actually accurate. The Father didn't turn his face away. He crushed Jesus, as Isaiah had predicted. And Jesus said he was going to do that deliberately. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And at his darkest hour, when all the lights go out, and even creation went dark, Jesus will cry out, and he didn't cry out, I'm in absolute agony, and he didn't cry out, why have all my friends betrayed me? He cried out something much worse. And it was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, until this moment, Jesus always addressed God as Father. taught us to do the same. But on the cross, he has lost his Father. He doesn't cry out, Father. He cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, Jesus knew the answer. It was no mystery to him why the Father had forsaken him. Because it was the will of the Father to crush him. Because through this death, he would bring many sons and daughters out of death and into glory. The spotless Jesus who knew no sin became sin on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place. Do you think it was a waste of perfume? Scholars tell us that in Jesus' time, women were largely excluded from careers that opened the possibility of earning such wages or buying any object of this value. That jar of perfume was most likely a family heirloom. It's the, the savings. It's in the safe. It would be passed down so that if the family were ever in really dire need, then it, only then would it be sold to bail them out. You wouldn't use perfume like this. This isn't eau de toilette. It's an investment. It was her life savings, her security. Mark says she broke the jar. She didn't just pour out half. It could never be used again. There's a totality about this gift. She has just poured out her net worth on Jesus. She has poured out her security in a single gesture. Do you think it was a waste? Not at this moment. Not before the hour of his greatest need. Not as he faced the violence of death. He is really human, you know. He has a body just like us. He has emotions. He's preparing to pour out his life. Would anything less than the whole jar be worthy? Anything less would be an insult. And that's why the disciples are so egregious. Not just Judas. All of them. They should have known better after all the years with Jesus and all the clear teaching about going to die. What kind of response has it drawn from them? Nothing. Yet from this woman 
who isn't even named here, in a former leper's house, on the margins, comes an act of beauty and sacrificial generosity that far surpasses all the others. No wonder Jesus speaks as he does in verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that is coming true right now. So I have just one question to close with. Why did she do it? Why did she do it? The answer is that this woman has made the connection between the gospel and suffering. And no one else has. She's made the connection that the great good news, the gospel that Jesus has been announcing, is bound up in his suffering and death as the lamb for us, for you. And that understanding has drawn love from her heart. This isn't duty. This far surpasses duty. Nobody told her to do it. It comes from love. Knowing what Jesus is going to do has moved her to tenderness and compassion. She just really loves him. For what he means to her and for what he's about to suffer. So when she heard he's coming to the house tonight, she thought, how can I honor him? And then her mind went to the perfume. And she thought, It's the best thing I've got. Matt, Catherine, you're going to Essex. You're going to Colchester, to the land of your forefathers. This is what you're calling people to. You're not going just to teach the Bible. You're going to call people to love Christ through teaching the Bible. We really hope and we pray and are confident that it will go well. Now, friends, as we close, are you, honestly, do you think you're more like Judas or more like Mary? You know, in some ways, we're all like Judas. Let's be real here. Because every sin is a personal betrayal of Jesus. Every sin is a personal betrayal of Jesus. If you know him, you know what he wants from your life, and you deliberately sin, you just betrayed him. Judas. But like Mary... When you see him again, are you ready to give everything you have to honor this man, this paradoxical king? False devotion likes a little bit of religion, but is offended by extremes. Just don't get carried away. Don't give too much money. You know, you need that. But true devotion knows no limits. What about you this morning? There's a wonderful story told by New York pastor Tim Keller of a woman who was a Wall Street executive, a very high-powered, uh, high-net-worth person. She had a salary like a telephone number. She was not a Christian, but she heard the gospel. She came to the church for a number of weeks. She met Pastor Tim for coffee and said to him, do you know, if what you're saying is true, then there is nothing that Jesus could not ask of me. What is Jesus asking of you today? Let's have a moment of silence before we pray and sing.
Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. Gracious Lord, give us the spirit of that woman, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing and turn some of that into sung worship. And I have to say, the last few weeks, the singing in this place uh, has been wonderful. And I tell you what, it's a treat to stand at the front because you get carried away by it. So let's stand when they begin to play and we'll sing together. Thank you.